This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Medical Error, From Disclosure and Apology to Root Cause Analysis, by Dr. K.S. Gotham. Hello, my name is Gautam Suresh. I am a professor of pediatrics at Baylor College of Medicine and section head and service chief of the neonatal intensive care unit at Texas Children's Hospital in Houston, Texas. Uh, for many years, I taught a course on patient safety and I have done research in this area. So it is my pleasure today to talk to you about medical error from disclosure and apology to root cause analysis. I do not have any conflicts of interest to disclose. And in today's module, we will be addressing how do you respond to errors or adverse events and what are the steps you need to take. Obviously, the first action is to protect the patient and ensure ongoing clinical stability. We also have to take care of the second victim, that is the nurse or physician or other health professional involved in the incident. We have to let our risk management colleagues know about the incident and get their advice. We have to analyze the event, both immediately and in subsequent meetings and analyses. And finally, an important part of today's discussion will be about disclosure and apology to the patient and the patient's family. Let's talk a little bit about the second victim. As I mentioned earlier, the health professional involved in the error or adverse event is known as the second victim, the first victim obviously being the patient and the family. And based on multiple research studies, we know that second victims tend to go through a lot of distress and suffering as a result of being involved in the incident. They may experience profound guilt, self-doubt about their competence. They may be embarrassed to show up at work and face their colleagues. They may be disappointed in themselves and blame themselves for harming the patient. They may be riddled with a sense of fear and a sense of inadequacy. And they may have difficulty sleeping at night. They may have recurrent anxiety about committing similar errors in the future. And many of them unfortunately develop dysfunctional coping mechanisms such as denial, distancing, discounting, and the tragedy of such dysfunctional coping mechanisms is ultimately neither they nor their colleagues learn from the error, and they end up losing out on an opportunity to learn from the error. The effects of the second victim distress and, and their going through all the suffering are aggravated by our medical culture of infallibility and perfectionism, where we expect nurses, physicians, and other clinicians to be perfect in their job and never make any mistakes, which is contrary to the nature of being human. We also suffer a lot from pre-existing stress of medical training, and the second victim phenomenon is often superimposed on such pre-existing stress, which makes it harder to tolerate. Uh, many clinicians work in an environment where colleagues are not supportive, and their supervisors or leaders are not very supportive or forgiving, and that itself makes it very hard for them 
to go back to work and function in the same environment where they were involved in a medical error or an adverse event. And many institutions don't have formal programs and support mechanisms to help the second victim. Therefore, many of them suffer and cope on their own and uh, as a result develop the dysfunctional coping mechanisms that I mentioned in the last slide. Second victims can also suffer from many long-term effects. For example, they're prone to burnout and depression. Their job satisfaction may plummet. They may have an increased predisposition to committing more errors in the future. And that sets in place a vicious cycle where their participation or uh, involvement in errors leads to more of trauma and distress. And that, in turn, leads them to commit more errors. Ultimately, many of the second victim clinicians can end up developing a defensive practice style where they underuse or overuse tests and treatments just out of fear of making a mistake. To help second victims in our institutions, the best practices that all of us can follow are having good mechanisms for debriefing where we provide just good listening emotional support, encourage them to talk about the event and express their emotions and their distress. Of course, such uh, meetings should always be quality assurance protected according to the state laws. Reflective writing is another very powerful tool where people are en encouraged to write about their experiences and thoughts and they're encouraged to write in a stream of consciousness way without pausing to edit, correct, fix the grammar or the spelling or to get the writing perfect. Once they do the writing, they don't even have to show it to anybody, they don't even have to read it themselves, but just the fact that they write down their thoughts in a stream of consciousness way has been shown to be very helpful in processing the event. When uh, second victims are in, allowed to participate in disclosure and apology mechanisms, it's very helpful for them and it helps their healing process. Giving people time off from work if they've been involved in a difficult incident is always good. And we should be offering professional counseling access to clinicians who have been involved in adverse events, especially if there's patient harm. And we should get in the habit of following up and providing repeat support sessions for these colleagues of ours. I mentioned debriefing in the previous slide. And uh, debriefing ideally should be done after every critical incident in your unit. Debriefings can be done immediately after the event, in which case they're known as hot debriefings, or they can be done several days or weeks after the event, in which case they're known as cold debriefings, or sometime in between, in which case they're known as warm debriefings. In a good debriefing, we have to set a safe atmosphere and set the right tone so that it's a learning experience and not a punitive experience. And the facilitator has to create an atmosphere which feels non-threatening, but at the same time, it's not frivolous and the people do take the whole discussion seriously. The discussions have to be non-judgmental and non-critical. We have to display extreme sensitivity to people's emotions and feelings and what they might be going through. Again, the key to good debriefings is good listening on the part of the facilitator. And non-verbal signals by the facilitator are very, very important. And if people demonstrate some sort of criticism or judgment or questioning through their non-verbal signals, 
that can derail the learning process in a debriefing. One simple way to conduct a debriefing is to ask three open-ended questions. What went well? What could have been done better? And what should we do differently next time around? There are other methods such as the plus delta method where we talk about what went well and what could be done differently. And finally, I would encourage all of you to read this very important article published by Rudolph and colleagues in 2007, which is known as Debriefing with Good Judgment. And they talk about the various approaches that one can take for, to debriefing and end up recommending this debriefing with good judgment approach. Let's move on now to event analysis. After every serious incident in the unit, we should get in the habit of analyzing what led to the event, what factors contributed to the event. And uh, many of you will be familiar with the term root cause analysis. But how many of us have seen a tree with just one root cause? Most trees have multiple roots and rootlets. And so also when we investigate an event, we have to recognize that there are multiple causal and contributory factors that lead to the occurrence of an event. One uh, framework that I would like to suggest to help analyze events is called the WHO model, where W stands for work environment, and we try to identify error-producing conditions in the work environment. H stands for human fallibility, and we try to understand how the humans involved in the incident went through various cognitive processes and made decisions that made sense at that moment in time, but later on backfired in some way. And finally, the uh, whole organizational context in which the work is done and the humans are functioning also is very, very important as a macro or a high-level factor that contributes to error. So when an error occurs, we have to ask who is responsible, and the who in this case stands for work conditions, human conditions, and organizational conditions. Examples of these three domains are listed in this slide. For example, uh, under work conditions, heavy workloads and unhealthy shift patterns could cause people to be fatigued and make errors. The design of equipment, the availability of resources, and the maintenance by biomedical departments can also cause malfunctioning of equipment. And uh, those could be the overall systems causes of errors and not carelessness by an individual. Amongst human factor examples, the various categories are staff knowledge and skills. Staff emotional state and stress may also contribute to an error. Amongst organizational conditions, financial resources and constraints that limit the number of staff available or cause overburdening of existing staff with excessive patients, and safety culture and priorities where people may not feel safe speaking up about safety concerns and they may feel afraid of intimidation or retaliation is an important organizational condition that predisposes to lack of safety. Many of you will be familiar with this uh, Swiss cheese model proposed by James Reason many, many years ago. Uh, because we are all aware of the possibility of error causing harm to patients, institutions put in place many defense mechanisms to intercept the error. And most often, the error is intercepted, say, by a vigilant pharmacist 
or uh, electronic uh, order entry system that double checks your uh, dose and the error does not reach the patient. But once in a way, as they say, all the holes line up and all the weaknesses in every layer of system are uh, in one straight line so that the error propagates through the system and reaches the patient and may even cause harm to the patient. So ultimately when we do a systems analysis, we're trying to reconstruct the event and trying to walk through the event prospectively to understand what exactly happened. When we're doing this, it's important to avoid hindsight bias, also known as the retrospectoscope, because with hindsight, we can always say they should have done this, they shouldn't have done that. But what we are trying to do when we do a prospective walk through the event is to try and understand why did the actions and decisions of the people involved in the event make sense at that point in time for them. So ultimately, we're trying to answer one of the important questions, was this an adverse event related to the healthcare interventions or was this a natural complication of the innate disease of the patient? That's one thing we have to try and tease out. Next, we have to try and understand, was this adverse event the result of an error and how confident are we that this was the result of an error and how much did the error contribute? Was it entirely responsible for the harm to the patient or was it contributory only partially and the rest was the patient's own disease and biology. Interestingly, when we're trying to do systems analysis, we often discover unrelated errors, and uh, those should be put aside in a parking lot for investigation later, because those are also valuable insights into your system and systems flaws that can help you promote safety overall. Ultimately, after doing an analysis, we try to classify events into errors, uh, or adverse events, and errors may result in adverse events, which is the overlapping circle. And errors that don't result in harm to the patient are known as near misses. And this visual also reminds us that many times adverse events are not the result of errors, meaning sometimes we do everything correctly and the patient still has an unanticipated event uh, that was not preventable. When the Institute of Medicine first published their seminal report to Air is Human, they emphasized that we should move away from blaming individuals and start looking at the whole system as the source and the locus of the origin of errors. But uh, after a few years, people got worried that individuals were not taking enough accountability for safety events. And so this uh, movement called Balancing No Blame with Accountability emerged. Here's one example of how institutions can try to balance no blame with accountability. This is an approach called the just culture where you try to classify the behavior into human error, at-risk behavior, or reckless behavior. And if it's a simple human error which is inadvertent, committed by well-intentioned individuals, you console and you focus on redesigning the system so that it's hard for uh, humans to commit similar errors in the future. If there was at-risk behavior, then you coach the individual and if there was reckless behavior, you punish the individual. This is an example of a decision tree from the UK where you systematically go through multiple steps and try to answer questions 
to identify whether specific individuals should be accountable and culpable for their actions or was it entirely a systems-based problem with well-intentioned individuals trapped within the system. And I would encourage you to uh, read an enlarged version of this slide later on and study the flow of decision-making in this flow diagram. Finally, let's move on to disclosure and apology, which is one of the most important aspects of responding to adverse events. The old approach many, many years ago used to be to deny and defend and uh, refuse to talk to the patient or the family for fear of being sued. This often led to an adversarial relationship and it's well known that many times lawsuits are driven by the family's desire to actually find out what happened and by their suspicion that there was a cover-up and uh, they were not being told the entire truth. So it, this was also not serving the patients well because only 2 to 3% of patients harmed by negligence pursued litigation. So it was not even helping uh, patients universally. And ultimately, even amongst those who pursued litigation, only about half received compensation. So this old approach was not working. Fortunately, today we function in an atmosphere where disclosure is not optional, but is required and recommended both ethically and by regulatory and expert organizations. Most hospital policies mandate this. And we should all learn how to perform disclosure well, appropriately, and uh, at the right time. Patients and families too expect full disclosure. And importantly, they want the health professionals and the organization to acknowledge their responsibility in the event. They want to understand what happened. They want to feel and hear expressions of sympathy and uh, sharing of the distress that they are undergoing. And one of the most important things for families is to know that the healthcare system and the health professionals are taking steps to prevent recurrence of the event so that future patients are not hurt. Good disclosure has many, many benefits. It increases the trust in the healthcare system. It maintains the physician-patient relationship. We don't add insult to injury like in the old days. It may help reduce emotional distress. It aids the healing process. And a couple of studies have actually found that good disclosure may actually reduce litigation. And if litigation occurs, the total amount of the settlement is actually lower than without disclosure. So how should we perform a disclosure? Ideally, the disclosure should be performed by an attending physician or a senior staff member. It should be timely, that means as soon as possible after the event, but obviously the patient and the family should be ready to hear the conversation. During the disclosure, we should avoid speculation and what's known as hyper-disclosure, where you speculate about what might have happened and start taking blame on yourself without knowing the full facts about the event and how things evolved. So we should be very careful during all disclosure conversations to convey only the known facts and not speculate. But we should promise the family and the patient to, that we will provide more facts after the full investigation. Apology is an important co component of disclosure conversations. 
and as in the debriefings non verbal communication is very very important uh, we should be following best practices for difficult conversations and sensitive conversations like sitting down not using jargon being slow and methodical and most importantly listening as much uh, as we can the primary purpose of disclosure is not to relieve physician guilt or nurse guilt and is not to reduce the risk of liability for the hospital the primary purpose is to provide transparency and to maintain the ongoing patient family relationship families can have various reactions to disclosure they can demonstrate anger grief or loss of trust but families can often be very forgiving and understanding of how things went wrong implementing safety solutions often provides a lot of solace to families and that's something we should always uh, fold into the disclosure conversations at the right time as i mentioned apology is a very important component of disclosure and aaron lazar has published that there are four important components of an apology acknowledgement of the offense an explanation of how things went wrong an expression of remorse shame and humility and finally reparation and compensation of some kind i'm sorry is a phrase that we commonly use during apologies and i'm sorry can be an expression of sympathy or empathy but it can also be interpreted as an admission of wrongdoing so many states have now put in place laws that prevent the phrase i'm sorry being used in a lawsuit as an admission of guilt or wrongdoing and i would encourage you to look up the apology laws in your state and uh, learn how they recommend you use apologies and the phrase i'm sorry during disclosure conversations and also obviously talk to the risk management people and look up your hospital policies i would like to end with this quotation from elizabeth kubler ross that says there are no mistakes no coincidences all events are blessings given to us to learn from and ultimately we need to learn from every adverse event and every medical error so that we can make the system safer for future patients thank you for your attention this recording is a production of open pediatrics a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide for more pediatric care materials or to join our global community please visit our website at openpediatrics.org Thank you.